As we transition from chapter 2, and we did spend quite a few weeks in chapter 2, and as we dive into the first part of chapter 3, there's a little context we should establish. The actions of Jesus and contrast to the actions of the religious leaders are going to be illustrated, really illustrated in a story we find in the first six verses of Mark chapter 3. We're going to find Mark illustrating for us the difference, the contrast that exists between having a relationship with Jesus, which should be the basis for all righteousness, versus the pseudo-moralism of religion that's been demonstrated by the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious do-gooders of the day. Let's dive in, verse 1 of chapter 3. And Jesus entered the synagogue again. And a man was there who had a withered hand. So they, speaking of the scribes and the Pharisees, they watched Jesus closely, whether or not Jesus would heal the man on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And Jesus, he said to the man with the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, speaking to the audience and probably more specific, the scribes, the Pharisees, he says, is it lawful? on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. But they kept silent. And when Jesus looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against Jesus how they might destroy him. Let's begin this morning, as we kind of always do, with the scene of activity. Don't forget, when we're looking at these stories, we start with the scene of activity, not really assuming you know all the nuances of the story, but kind of taking our reading comprehension to another level, making sure we can maybe travel back in time, place ourselves into the story, just to be able to see everything that's really happening and the dynamics at play we might overlook. Secondly, we'll address any relevant questions that might pop up. In order for us, in the third category, to make some observations in order to peel back the layers of meaning to get down to the substance of what this story has for our lives. So the scene of activity. Jesus, as we're told, he enters the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. Now, following Jesus' bowl of Cheerios or Fruit Loops and his Saturday morning cartoons, Jesus always went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, to worship. This was his custom. It was such a routine that it was predictable. Every single Saturday, without fail, Jesus could be found at the synagogue. Apparently, this routine was so predictable that it provided a perfect opportunity for these religious leaders who Jesus has been, uh, let's say, in conflict with for the last several verses, it gives them the opportunity to set a trap for Jesus. They knew when and where he'd be, he'd be which is perfect conditions for an ambush. Now, the trap that they laid out was simple. 
If given the opportunity, these men knew that Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. It was kind of a given, which, according to their traditions, was a violation of the Sabbath. If they could simply present a need, they knew that Jesus wouldn't be able to resist himself. You know, it's funny to me to think that the religious debate of the day was on the topic of health care. On one side, you had those who wanted a universal, single-payer system, and on the other side, there were those who wanted free market solutions. Okay, maybe that wasn't the debate that they had when it came to health care, but they still actually had a debate concerning health care nonetheless. According to the Sabbath tradition, and don't forget, as we stated last Sunday, the traditions concerning the Sabbath, the laws, the nuances, the particulars that the Pharisees had written out about the Sabbath day, they had 39 rules. One commandment given by God, they then expounded 39 rules with 39 variations to each rule. I mean, you want to talk about splitting hairs, the Pharisees had done it, and specifically concerning the Sabbath. Now, the big question, the health care topic of the day, was how much care could you provide a person in need before the care was considered work? This was debated. There were people that like split across party lines concerning this topic. The traditional consensus was this, that if you cut your finger on the Sabbath, it was permissible for you to stop the bleeding, but you were not allowed to put ointment on the cut. You could stop the bleeding, but you couldn't stitch up the wound. You weren't even allowed to put a little bit of neosporin to keep out any uh, bacteria or any disease from spreading. It was okay, according to these leaders, to take action to stop the wound from getting worse but you are not allowed to do anything to make the situation better. Healing, healing, was therefore considered a work, making it a violation of the Sabbath. You could stop the wound, stop the bleeding, but you couldn't do anything to heal because healing was work and work was a violation. Now, in order to lure Jesus into a clear public violation of the Sabbath, and in our previous story, when Jesus begins this dialogue about the Sabbath, don't forget that we're told by Mark that as they were making their way on the Sabbath day through the field grain, for the field full of grain, that it was the disciples who were the ones taking and eating the grain and threshing it and harvesting it as they were making their way through. We're not actually told that Jesus himself was eating the grain. And the problem that the Pharisees had, they come to Jesus and they're like, look at what your disciples are doing. It's not necessarily an accusation to what Jesus was doing. But now they're transitioning, not just to the disciples, but they're trying to set a trap to get Jesus to do something that they considered violation of the Sabbath. And to do this, they strategically had placed in the synagogue that day, a man with a withered hand. Now, it would be better to translate this as a man whose hand had become withered. Because the idea is that the man's hand became this way as a consequence of some tragic set of circumstances. 
This condition wasn't something the man had been born with. His hand had become withered as a result of an accident. I even heard one commentator speculate that it could have been that the Pharisees actually went out and found someone who had like had actually had an accident that morning and brought him in so he's bleeding. Like it's not just that his hand was withered from a former accident, which is probably more the case, but that like he could have had a withered, distorted arm because of an accident that had taken place. And they're sitting back like, we know Jesus can't resist. We know he's going to do something. We know when Jesus sees a need, he's going to jump into the fray. And we're setting this trap. Either way, this man had a need and Jesus takes the bait. Told that he sees the man He recognized a need presented in the life of the man. And I'm sure that Jesus was moved with compassion over the man's circumstances and had a true heart concern for his well-being. As is always the case, Jesus was determined that morning to do something about this man's condition. Now, though Jesus' chief concern was the well-being of the man with the withered hand, Don't think for a moment that Jesus was naive to what was really going on that morning. Jesus knew what the Pharisees were up to. Jesus knew their intentions, but this is what blows me away about our story. Even knowing that this man had been placed there as a trap, Jesus didn't care. He didn't care. He knew what was going on. He looked around the room. He saw as this man caught his eye, the Pharisees kind of perk up out of their seats. He knew, but he didn't give a rip. The trap. The trap has been set for Jesus. Jesus takes the bait. The scene is therefore filled with anticipation. What Jesus will do is on the forefront of everyone's mind in the synagogue that morning. And you can hear, at least I can, the murmurs, the rumblings as Jesus ignores the trap and asks this man to step forward. Everyone in the synagogue, they knew that day that Jesus was not going to be intimidated from good by these religious leaders. They knew that Jesus wasn't going to back down from an unavoidable collision. Not only that, but it's interesting to me. Jesus not only wasn't going to back down from this confrontation with the religious leaders, but you can make the case that Jesus, he actually felt inclined to not defuse the situation, but rather pour fuel onto the fire. I mean, Jesus, by his actions in some ways, kind of inflames the situation. You see, instead of asking this man, you know, to maybe meet him after the service, he asks him to step out in front of the crowd, out in front of everyone. It was as though, in my mind, I can see the scene that Jesus, by asking the man to come out, that Jesus is kind of like taking off his robes, like Peter's pulling back the top and second ropes. Jesus is getting into the ring. Jesus is kind of dodging around, doing a little of this, a little of that. He's looking across to his opponent, and he's kind of like, with his hand waving, bring it. Like, he's not just like, oh, there's a conflict here. I should defuse the situation. It's kind of, though, he gets into the ring. It's like, all right, let's do this. Throw down. David Guzik observes, 
that Jesus could have performed this miracle the next day. Jesus could have done it privately, but he chose to do it at this time and in this place. In this, we can see that Jesus deliberately used this occasion to provoke a response. Now, the man, the man obeys Jesus by stepping out of the crowd. However, before Jesus addresses this man's specific need, Jesus throws the first blow by asking the crowd a rather brilliant question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Now, what makes Jesus' question so brilliant is that it emphasized a universal truth that would really seem silly to dismiss just because it was a day of the week, just because it was Saturday. His logic is, is kind of like this. God wants us to do good. So is there ever a time or a day that we shouldn't be obedient and do good? His point was that there was never a wrong day to do something truly good. I think the majority of the crowd probably thought Jesus' point here, Jesus' observation, this question, seemed logical. I even think that the audience probably found Jesus' point to be very reasonable. However, the religious leaders, we're told by Mark, were speechless. And the hardness of their hearts, they had refused to respond, and they refused to answer his question. In a lot of ways, Jesus had just shown them up. Jesus had outsmarted them, outfoxed the religious leaders. The crowd was now swayed. The crowd was on the side of Jesus, and these guys did not have a good move that they could use to hit back and shift the, mom the momentum back to their side. Mark is clear that Jesus, as a response to this, as a result of their silence, was grieved. He was grieved by the hardness of their hearts, and we're told that Jesus became angry at their silence. He became angry at their inability to learn. Jesus became angry at their unwillingness to admit maybe they were wrong. He became angry at their religious tradition. He became angry by the fact that they were more interested in discrediting him than they were in caring for the man with the withered hand. I'm sure Jesus was angry because these religious leaders claimed to represent God, but wow, were they such a misrepresentation. And then, Jesus has them on the ropes. Jesus is on the offense. And then Jesus delivers the knockout punch. What Jesus does here is kind of like in Mortal Kombat when the announcer declares, finish him. And Jesus goes for it. Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And, and yes, that was a, a Mortal Kombat reference in a Bible study. The man stretched it out and his hand, we're told, was restored as whole as the other. Now, though this was an incredible miracle, and I'm sure the onlookers that day were amazed by what they had witnessed, we're, we're going to see this by the response that ends up happening in the rest of chapter 3. But Mark tells us something interesting. He tells us that the Pharisees 
went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against Jesus how they might destroy him. <laughs> you know, it's unbelievable. Their reaction to a miracle was the desire to kill the miracle worker. Jesus heals the man with the withered hand, and the reaction to the Pharisees, of the Pharisees, is, let's kill him. What? That's out of control. You should understand that this plot to kill Jesus, it was hatched by an alliance of the most unlikely characters. And it demonstrates the hardness of their hearts. You know, we've already discussed who the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were the religious conservatives, the traditionalists. They had a traditional interpretation of the law. They were kind of like the religious right of the day. They were nationalistic when it came to Israel. But it is unfathomable that they would choose to team up with the Herodians. I mean, it would be kind of like the KKK partnering up with like the NAACP, like for a particular issue. Like, could you ever find something that would unite those two groups of people? It's kind of like that. You see, the Herodians were a non-religious political party who had intentionally distinguished themselves from the Pharisees by doing this. They had aligned themselves with Herod the Great and the Herodian dynasty that followed. Because the Herodians were a group of Jews who had supported the rule of King Herod, they were despised by the nationalists, the Pharisees, because Herod wasn't a Jew. Herod was an Edomite. He was a Gentile ruling over Hebrew land. And this would set the Herodians and the Pharisees in total opposition to one another. But isn't it true that Jesus is in the business of bringing people together? Maybe not in this way. The Pharisees hated Jesus because he threatened their religious power, their position, their prominence over the land of Israel. The Herodians now hated Jesus because his growing popularity was becoming a threat to their political power. Herod first wasn't, he wasn't exactly amped up on a Jew wandering around the land claiming to be the king of the Jews. Like that just didn't float well with King Herod. Not to mention their fear is that if Jesus, as the people really believed, had come to start a revolution, a physical revolt against the Romans, that not only would that revolt get crushed like revolutionaries before Jesus, such as Judas Maccabeus, but that Herod's power and prominence because he, his job was to keep the peace, that the Romans would overreact to a rebellion and kick Herod and strip him of all power and authority. They didn't like the fact that Jesus had a growing fame. At this point, both groups, both groups felt drastic measures had to be taken to preserve their power and their influence. This is significant because this is the first time the ministry of Jesus enters a new phase. There is an official plot to kill Christ. Now, our first relevant question, and I don't know if it jumped out at you as we were reading through the text, but was it okay for Jesus 
to be angry. Jesus was angry. You know, we don't get a lot of that in the New Testament. There's only a handful of times that we're told that Jesus saw something and that his emotional response was anger. And our question this morning is, was that okay? And then what does that mean for me? Like we often, I think in our culture, we kind of look down upon the emotion of anger. But understand, anger Anger is not evil. Please note that anger is a basic human emotion that God has wired into all human beings whereby we can express annoyance or communicate a sense of displeasure in response or reaction to appropriate events and interactions that necess necessitate a reaction. Because it is a basic emotion to be angry, like it's an emotional response. God created us with the ability to experience this emotional response. Because we've been created with anger or to become angry, you know, I don't really think that we should view it as a negative. It's interesting for the student of Scripture that God actually encourages us to be angry. Do you know that? That in the Bible, God actually tells us to be angry. He says in Psalm 4.4, be angry, but just don't sin. Now, when considering anger, there are two key principles that we should keep in mind. First, we should only allow ourselves to become angry over the appropriate or the right things. For example, in the light of the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts, Mark is clear Jesus was first grieved. He was bummed out, and then he was angry. In his love, Jesus was grieved that the hardened heart that they possessed would rob them of the goodness that he wanted to afford, and that angered him. In his love, Jesus was angry that their self-righteous attitude had created the hardening in the first place. You know, guys, if we're to be like Jesus, do you realize that there are times that we should be angry? That there are right things that we should be angry over? that the emotional response should happen, should be kindled up within the heart of the believer over certain things, that anger is actually godly? And if we're to be like Jesus, then there are times we should be angry? In the face of injustice or in the face of abuse, we should be angry and this emotional reaction should spur us to appropriate actions. If we're to be like Jesus... If we're to be like Jesus in the face of sin, destroying the lives of the people that we love, we should be angry. And this emotion should spur us. It should motivate us to respond. We should be angry, but we should allow ourselves to only be angry when it's appropriate. The second thing we should keep in mind, the second principle, is that we should not allow anger to manifest a response that is sinful. Psalms 4.4, be angry. There are things you should be angry about, but do not sin. There are times when we experience anger and react in anger to a situation at the wrong time and in the wrong way. I heard one pastor comment this week that we don't often have an anger problem. What we have is a timing problem. We have a control problem. There are things that you should be angry at and over. 
but you should express that anger at the right time and in the right way. And how do we do that? Because that's where it gets sticky, right? I mean, that's where we, that's where we often get ourselves into trouble. We lash out in anger the wrong time, the wrong way. And okay, the anger, that's not the problem. It's how we handle it, how we act as a result of it. How do I control these things? How do I control these emotions? How do I do this? Well, the truth is that we don't. Self, it can't control self. You see, the only way that you can control the emotion of anger is to surrender it to the mastership of Christ and then submit it to the influence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' ministry started how? The mastership of God and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so when we get out there and when we're dealing with anger, two key principles. Anger is not a bad thing, but we should first only allow ourselves to become angry over appropriate things. And second, we should, not, we should not allow anger to manifest a response that is sinful. The second question that jumps out to me from the passage, and once again, addressing these questions all intend on helping us unpack the greater lessons communicated through the text. But my second question is, was it, was it okay for Jesus to pick a fight? I mean, it's evident that Jesus didn't diffuse the situation when he could, and he instead decided like, to get into the ring and have a throwdown, a spiritual throwdown. Was this okay? Now, the obvious answer is yes. As we've discussed, the whole situation was a setup. The religious leaders were looking for something we're told that they might accuse him over. They were willing to use a handicapped man as bait. Jesus was not intimidated. Jesus would not only not back down, but he would decide to take them on. It was an altercation that Jesus welcomed. But before we embrace this godly attribute, because I can imagine, at least sometimes I do, wait a second, so it's okay in the face of self-righteousness, in the face of the legalists, for me to not just defuse the situation, but I can get in and be like Jesus and throw down. So you're saying, Zach, that it's a godly thing for me to get into spiritual mortal combat? Yes, it's okay. But we need to think through a few things beforehand. First, when is it okay and under what circumstances is it appropriate for the Christian to engage in a spiritual throwdown? And for those answers, we have to look at how Jesus handled the situation. The first thing we need to think about before we drop kick someone, spiritually speaking, is first, we should make sure the issue is worth the fight. Please keep that in mind, because so often Christians get into confrontation. We make the mistake of fighting and then dividing over things not worth fighting and dividing over. We end up dividing over things that are stupid, things that are trivial, things that are insignificant, things that are non-essential. I mean, Jesus embraced this confrontation for two reasons. First, there was a man that was hurting in need of healing. 
And Jesus was always willing to fight for the weak. He was always willing to fight for the hurting. He was always willing to fight for the downcast. He was always willing to fight for the disenfranchised. That was a fight worth having. And so should we. But the second thing, the second reason Jesus embraced confrontation is in defense of the truth. The Pharisees had twisted and they had distorted the Sabbath into a monster that God had never intended. They claimed to represent the Word of God and they were burdening the people with a yoke of bondage and a burden that God had never devised. Jesus found it an appropriate reason to fight when the truth of God, the Word of God, was at stake. If we see someone hurting or someone in need, we should step into the fight. But if we see that the Word of God is being twisted or morphed or being used to communicate something it shouldn't, we should fight. But we should make sure that we pick our battles appropriately. The second thing is that we should make sure our motivations are pure. Mark is clear that Jesus desired a confrontation with these leaders, I think because he wanted to see their hearts softened. Jesus was grieved. He was grieved because their hearts were hardened, that they were silent. Jesus didn't back down. I think because he wanted to see repentance within these religious leaders. I really believe that Jesus loved them and it broke his heart to see them reject the work God had for them. And for that, Jesus found that his motivation was not to destroy his opponent, but his motivation was to hope to reason and to work and to minister in their lives to see a greater response. Those are two reasons, folks, we should embrace a fight. If our motivation is pure and we're fighting for the right thing, we should engage the battle, but then I think it's obvious that we should also make sure to take Jesus into the fight with us. That we shouldn't go it alone, but that should Christ should be in the midst. Now, my first observation this morning from our passage. I don't know if you get this, but Jesus, Jesus really is an incredible man. I mean, I know that seems very simple, I know it seems elementary, but you know, our whole topic here, the whole theme of our study through Mark is that Jesus' actions, it communicates so much to me about who he is, about who I follow, and about what he has for me. I mean, my first observation is that this story, it, it reveals to me some incredible things about Jesus. First, Jesus had an awesome reputation. I'm blown away by a subtlety in our story that we might have overlooked. The whole ambush, like the whole ambush here, was based upon two predictable attributes of Jesus. There were two things about Jesus, two characteristics about Christ that were so well known, so predictable that they could be used to set a trap for him. Those two things were one, if it was time for church, he was there. Like, it, like if it was the Sabbath, he was at the synagogue. If you wanted to know where Jesus was on Saturday morning, it was predictable. You know, God, that should be the same for us, that we should have the same reputation. 
that come hell or high water, if Jesus loves the church, then I want to take advantage of the chance to go and meet with the church. Not that it's a building, but it's the people. That this is our opportunity to fellowship with one another and also Christ. Jesus faithfully attended the synagogue. And this is predictable. I love it. But his second reputation is that even Jesus' enemies knew that when Jesus entered a room, he would immediately turn his attention to those with the greatest need. They placed the man with the withered hand in the congregation because they knew that if Jesus was there and saw the man, he couldn't resist himself. How cool is that? His enemies, that's the best they had. He goes to church a lot. Can't believe it. And man, he's always looking to help people, especially those in need. What a wicked guy. That's his reputation. Jesus was known for his irresistible love for people, his love for the outcast, his love for those in need. His critics knew by this reputation that Jesus would minister to a broken man or a broken woman when it was in need. This was predictable. You know, I want that reputation. But the second thing we see about Jesus is that Jesus was a fighter. He was a fighter. The idea of Jesus being a man's man is really a disconnect from popular conclusions. It is an inescapable truth that the biblical Jesus will offend a culture that has actively attacked masculinity. And not only that, it will also discredit a popular brand of Christianity that has presented nothing more than a neutered, asexual Jesus. Understand, Jesus was willing to throw down. He was not a weakling. Jesus was a carpenter by trade. I imagine that Jesus was sun-worn from his hours outside. I imagine that his forearms were like a solid rock. I imagine that Jesus' hand was calloused and produced such a grip that it, it communicated that he meant business. We get this idea of Jesus as like a, a, a wussy Fabio making his way with long flowing robes and perfectly manicured hair. That wasn't Jesus. Jesus was blue collar. He was tough. Jesus might have wore sandals, but I can promise you, they were manly sandals. Jesus was tough. But understand that Jesus wasn't some peace-loving, pot-smoking hippie either. Jesus wasn't a flower child who wore bell-bottoms and followed around the Grateful Dead. Jesus wasn't a peace-loving kind of guy. I love how Revelation reveals Jesus riding a white horse with a wicked thigh tattoo, branding a sword, and killing people. Yeah, he came to save, but he also came to kick butt and take names. But we don't often think of Jesus this way. Jesus, think about this. From our story, Jesus wasn't even a consensus builder. Jesus was and has always been a polarizing person. Do you realize when it was all said and done and his three-year ministry, Jesus had actually divided and alienated more of the population than he had unified to his cause? 
most of the population, he had so polarized, they wanted him dead. Not just the religious leaders, like the mob wanted him dead. When it was all said and done, his followers even ran. Jesus polarized more people than he unified. And why? He took a stand. He had a backbone. He wasn't a spineless wimp. He wasn't a pansy. Jesus was a fighter. He took on the establishment. He challenged the status quo. Jesus would bow up when necessary, but he also possessed the strength and discipline to back down when he knew it would serve a greater purpose. We wonder why there's not a lot of men coming to church. It's because we've presented a Jesus that isn't worth following. Men want someone they can look to, someone that they can trust heading into battle, someone they can rally behind, and Jesus is worthy of that. Jesus, from this story, he was a fighter. My second observation is that the effects of tradition and self-righteousness really are tragic. First, the religious leaders were so bound to their traditions that they were blind to the new work that Jesus had come to accomplish in their own lives. Oh, the powerful bind of religious traditions. The danger of religion, and it's worthy of repeating, is that it blinds me of my need for salvation, thus alienating me from a savior. It's a simple truth that non-biblical religious traditions, as demonstrated by the Pharisees, what does it do? It fosters a sense of pride, not in the work of God, but in my work for God. And when this happens, understand that it becomes very difficult for a person to cut ties to these traditional works. Why? Because it will cut at the very core of a person's self-confidence. To reject these traditions is to admit failure. It's to embrace humility. It requires death to self. Not only was it difficult for these Pharisees to move beyond their moralism, but it had created an impossible impasse between themselves and Jesus. It had robbed them of the work that Jesus had desired to do in them and through them. The other devastating effect here is that it's a very rare thing when we can recognize religious tradition within ourselves. It's easy to recognize religious tradition in others, but we're often blind because we can't see it in me. I heard one pastor say, sometimes it's difficult for some of us who come from an untraditional church tradition, like Calvary, to recognize the traditions we've inadvertently established. It's easy for us as a church to look at other churches and say, look at how traditional they are, how it's robbing them of the fresh work Jesus wants to do. But we should look at ourselves. What things have we incorporated? What traditions have we incorporated that have inadvertently separated us from the work that Jesus wants to do? It's sad to think that these men knew what Jesus could do for the man with the withered hand, yet their knowledge didn't draw them to Jesus, but fostered animosity towards Jesus and those that would follow. The second thing here about religion is that the religious leaders were so bound to their traditions that they were more interested in obeying their traditions than having compassion for others. 
Oh, the bind of religious tradition. Their hearts had become so warped by their self-righteous systems of morality and the superiority that came with it that they were, it was to them more important than obey their tradition than it was to minister to the very person that the law had come to minister to. You know, Braves fan can really sympathize with this today because there was a law enacted in the eighth inning of our one-game stupid playoff. A pop-up in the outfield 70 feet further than it had been applied to any other scenario that year. The shortstop floats back to try to get under the ball. He never gets under the ball. It falls in between him and the left fielder. The Braves fans erupts because bases will be loaded and we're rallying. But there was an umpire who was more interested in obeying the traditions of the law than he was for making sure the heart behind the law was applied because the infill fly, the rule, its purpose was this, never to help the outfielder or never to help the shortstop that should have caught the ball. The purpose of the law was to be there as a safeguard for the offense. It was to make sure that those that were on base couldn't be tricked by the ball dropping and get doubled up by a dirty play. The rule was to protect the offense. But those umpires were so particular in making sure this one rule started in the 1890s. Not even a modern rule could be applied, though it damaged the very people it was designed to help. Really? Oh, the powerful bind of religious tradition. The Braves should be hosting a playoff game today. But those Pharisees, headed up by the chief Pharisee, Joe Torrey, have robbed us of the true intention of the law. My third observation. Religion. Religion has no remedy for man's condition. Isn't it fascinating that in the face of human need, why hadn't the Pharisees and the scribes addressed the need of the man with the withered hand? The truth is because religion can't address a man's need. Religion might serve to diagnose a human predicament, but it has never provided a remedy for man's fallen condition. Religion neither leaves a man, a religion either leaves a man condemned in failure, I can never be good enough, or it leaves a man filled with self-confidence, look at all the things I've done for God, but it never takes care of a person's problem. Religion fails. Religion leaves this man with the withered hand with a withered hand. But Jesus, a relationship, an encounter with Jesus well, that had different effects. Religion left this man sitting in the pew damaged, but Jesus told him to step out and he healed him. Which leads me to my fourth observation. Faith in God is essential for a work of God. Jesus' first interaction with the man with the withered hand was simple, but radical. 
It was a radical command. Jesus asks him to step out from the crowd. You might want to write this down, but every work of God, every miracle of God, requires an initial step of faith. It's faith. It's been said that the man who risks nothing does nothing, and the man who does nothing has nothing, and the man who has nothing is nothing. The man who is not willing to step out in faith when he experiences the prompting of the Lord is the man who will never see the miraculous work of God being demonstrated in and through his life. The Bible is so clear to everyone that God has done something in and through that faith is essential. The man who risks nothing gets nothing. How this would have been a much different story if Jesus had looked at this man and said, step out. But this man had instead run away. I think it's sad. And this is something that the Lord has been challenging me concerning. But it's sad that often the greatest hindrance to God's work in our lives is often our inability to take a step of faith. It's not God's willingness. It's not God's desire. But it's us taking a step of faith. Faith in God is essential. It's a non-negotiable if we want to experience a work of God. And isn't it that we all want to experience a work of God? What prompting has the Lord placed on your, on your heart that you haven't stepped out in? The first step is to take a step of faith. My fifth observation is that obedience to God's commands is essential also for a work of God. It starts by faith and then it transitions to obedience. And we learn a couple things about obedience when it comes to God's commands from this passage. First, you, you know, God often commands the impossible. That's how faith ends up being manifested. The work of God in this man's life began with a step of faith, but this was followed with a command to do something that was actually impossible for the man to actually do. Jesus commanded the man with the withered hand to stretch out his hand. How do you stretch out a hand that's paralyzed? The truth is, is you can't. Now, I don't know how this man's obedience manifested itself, but we're told by Mark that in obedience to Jesus' command, the man in some way demonstrated a stretching out. Whether his hand was withered and he did whatever he could through his body, whether it was simply an intention of his heart, but he did whatever he could to be obedient. He stepped out in faith. God said, stretch out your hand. And he did whatever he could to try to stretch it out, though it was impossible. It was impossible. The verbiage here for the phrase stretch out is active. It was something the man was doing to show his obedience to an impossible command. He was doing it to the best of his ability. But then the verbiage restored is passive. What does this mean? The man's act was active, but the result was passive. Meaning, though he was obedient, his obedience had nothing to do with the healing. As the man put forth effort to simply obey, what happened? God met him in the act and did the rest. 
Now, now this leads to our second point. God's commands, even when they seem impossible, are also God's enablements. You see, God never commands us to do something. Even when we think what he's asking us to do is impossible. I just can't do it, man. He never commands us to do something without also enabling us to do it. When Jesus gave a command to this man to stretch out a withered hand, Jesus coupled with the command the ability to obey it. The result? The man was actually able to stretch out a hand that had been withered. God's commandments are also God's enablements. Faith. Faith disregards apparent impossibilities. Where there is a command and a promise of God, the effort to believe is often that faith in which the soul is healed. If I step out in faith and obey the commandments of God, even if I think obedience is impossible, I'll experience the improbable, a complete work of God. Which leads me to my sixth observation and final observation this morning. Isn't Jesus' work always complete? We're told by Mark that his hand was restored as whole as the other, indicating that the other hand seemed just fine. We're talking full restoration, complete and total healing. It starts with a step of faith and then obedience to do even if I, if I don't think I can do it. Knowing that in taking that step of faith and being obedient, that God will then give me the enabling or the ability to do that which I thought was impossible. And in the process, become whole. Let me give you an example. Sometimes men will justify their improprieties or immoralities because they no longer love their wives. Might hear it stated, well, Zach, I just don't love her anymore. I actually despise her. There is no way I can love her. I can't do it. And God says, take a step and, 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 and be obedient, and the Bible's clear to love your wife. I can't do it, Zach. Well, wait a second. Jesus is asking you, to take a step of faith and obedience and just do it to the best of your ability. I can't, I can't do it, man. Try. And in the act of trying, you often see a miracle take place. Because not only are they able to do it, but then the Lord begins by obedience to fill that man's hardened heart with love that he begins to soften it. Well, Zach, there's a sin in my life. I just can't, I can't beat it. I can't overcome it. I can't have victory in it. I'm damaged. Step out. Start with simple obedience. Because you know what? You might not be able to, but Jesus can. And Jesus will take our step of faith, coupled with our step of obedience, and he will do a work. This man's withered hand. It's interesting to me. Some of the miracles that Jesus performs, he performs, he, he enacts a healing for someone that was born with a disease or born with a, with a, a malformation. This man, it's clear, 
his withered hand was not a byproduct of the fact he was born that way. It had happened to him. Now, whether it was him engaging in an accident or whether it was a mistake, whether it happened independent of him but was done to him or whether it was something that he did, didn't realize it, and was damaged for it. Isn't it true that so often we have scars for two reasons, that we have a withered heart for two reasons? One, we did something stupid. We were working a a saw and we stuck our hand in it. And my hand is withered because I was a moron. Isn't it true that sometimes we have wounds because we've self-inflicted the wound? And then isn't it true sometimes we have wounds that have been inflicted upon us where we didn't do anything to deserve it, we didn't do anything to bring it upon ourselves, that it was an outside influence that had a tragic result upon me, that I am a victim as a result of it, and I have this withered hand, not because I was being a moron, but because the world stinks and I got bit, bit hard. Jesus would look at you and he would say, step out, because I want to do something there. I want to restore and I want to heal I want to take what the world has withered and I want to make it as whole as new. This morning, my exhortation to you, I know we carry scars. I know we've experienced withering. And I know for some of us, we've reached the point where we've concluded it's impossible. There's nothing that can be done, especially by me. But Jesus asks us just a simple command. Stretch out that hand. Just stretch it out. Just a little. And then that obedience, I promise that you will witness a miracle. Now, for this man, it was instantaneously. And for some of you, it might be instantaneously. But I also know that there are wounds that take time to heal. But Jesus is faithful nonetheless.